Part 3 Executive Immunity For all immunity doctrines, the burden is on the official claiming immunity to demonstrate his entitlement. Former President Trump claims absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for all official acts undertaken as president, a category, he contends, that includes all of the conduct alleged in the indictment. The question of whether a former president enjoys absolute immunity from federal criminal liability is one of first impression. The Supreme Court has consistently held that even a sitting president is not immune from responding to criminal subpoenas issued by state and federal prosecutors. In the civil context, the Supreme Court has explained that a former president is absolutely immune from civil liability for his official acts, defined to include any conduct falling within the outer perimeter of his official responsibility. Both sitting and former presidents remain civilly liable for private conduct. When considering the issue of presidential immunity, the Supreme Court has been careful to note that its holdings on civil liability do not carry over to criminal prosecutions. Former President Trump's claimed immunity would have us extend the framework for presidential civil immunity to criminal cases and decide for the first time that a former president is categorically immune from federal criminal prosecution for any act conceivably within the outer perimeter of his executive responsibility. He advances three grounds for establishing this expansive immunity for former presidents. 1. Article 3 courts lack the power to review the president's official acts under the separation of powers doctrine. 2. Functional policy considerations rooted in the separation of powers require immunity to avoid intruding on executive branch functions. And three, the impeachment judgment clause does not permit the criminal prosecution of a former president in the absence of the Congress impeaching and convicting him. Our analysis is guided by the Constitution, federal statutes, and history as well as concerns of public policy. Relying on these sources, we reject all three potential bases for immunity, both as a categorical defense to federal criminal prosecutions of former presidents and as applied to this case in particular. A. Separation of Powers Doctrine the President of the United States occupies a unique position in the constitutional scheme. Under the separation of powers established in the Constitution, the President is vested with executive power, which entails the duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, and supervisory and policy responsibilities of utmost discretion and sensitivity. The President's constitutional role exists alongside the Congress's duty to make the laws and the judiciary's duty to say what the law is. It is settled law that the separation of powers doctrine does not bar every exercise of jurisdiction over the President of the United States. Nevertheless, former President Trump argues that the constitutional structure of separated powers 
means that neither a federal nor a state prosecutor nor a state or federal court may sit in judgment over a president's official acts, which are vested in the presidency alone. He relies on Marbury's oft-quoted statement that a president's official acts can never be examinable by the courts. Former President Trump misreads Marbury and its progeny. Properly understood, the separation of powers doctrine may immunize lawful discretionary acts, but does not bar the federal criminal prosecution of a former president for every official act. Marbury distinguished between two kinds of official acts, discretionary and ministerial. As to the first category, Chief Justice Marshall recognized that the president is invested with certain important political powers in the exercise of which he is to use his own discretion and is accountable only to his country in his political character and to his own conscience. When the president or his appointed officers exercise discretionary authority, the subjects are political, and the decision of the executive is conclusive. Their discretionary acts, therefore, can never be examinable by the courts. But, Chief Justice Marshall continued, when the legislature proceeds to impose on that officer other duties— when he is directed peremptorily to perform certain acts, when the rights of individuals are dependent on the performance of those acts, he is so far the officer of the law, is amenable to the laws for his conduct, and cannot at his discretion sport away the vested rights of others. Under these circumstances, an executive officer acts as a ministerial officer, compellable to do his duty, and if he refuses, is liable to indictment. Based on these principles, Chief Justice Marshall concluded that although discretionary acts are only politically examinable, the judiciary has the power to hear cases where a specific duty is assigned by law. Marbury thus makes clear that Article III courts may review certain kinds of official acts, including those that are legal in nature. The cases following Marbury confirm that we may review the president's actions when he is bound by law, including by federal criminal statutes. In Little v. Barem, the Supreme Court concluded that the president's order to a subordinate officer to seize American ships traveling to or from French ports violated the Non-Intercourse Act precisely because the Congress had acted to constrain the executive's discretion. Chief Justice Marshall observed that the president may have had the discretionary authority to order the seizure absent legislation, but had no discretion to violate the act. Similarly, in Kendall v. United States X. Rel. Stokes, the Supreme Court reviewed the official acts of the Postmaster General, the President's subordinate officer who derived his authority from the executive branch, because the civil case involved the violation of a statutory requirement. To find a statutory violation unreviewable, the court held, 
would be clothing the president with a power entirely to control the legislation of Congress and paralyze the administration of justice. Then, in Mississippi v. Johnson, the Supreme Court considered whether the state of Mississippi could sue President Andrew Johnson to enjoin him from enforcing the Reconstruction Acts, which the state alleged were unconstitutional. The court concluded that it lacked jurisdiction to issue an injunction, relying on Marbury, Kendall, and the distinction between mere ministerial duties in which nothing was left to discretion, and purely executive and political duties involving the president's discretion. In holding that it could not enjoin the president from using his discretion, the court nevertheless affirmed the role of the judiciary in checking the other two branches of government. The Congress is the legislative department of the government. The president is the executive department. Neither can be restrained in its action by the judicial department, though the acts of both, when performed, are, in proper cases, subject to its cognizance. The Supreme Court exercised its cognizance over presidential action to dramatic effect in 1952 when it held that President Harry Truman's executive order seizing control of most of the country's steel mills exceeded his constitutional and statutory authority and was therefore invalid. See Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company v. Sawyer, 1952. The Congress had not legislated to authorize President Truman's seizure and, in fact, had refused to adopt the seizure method of settling labor disputes. President Truman could lawfully act only to execute the Congress's laws or to carry out his constitutional duties as the executive, and he lacked authority from either source to seize the steel mills. As Justice Jackson explained, the court's holding invalidating the executive order was proper because when the president takes measures incompatible with the expressed or implied will of Congress, his power is at its lowest ebb. Based on Youngstown and Marbury, the Supreme Court in Clinton easily concluded that when the president takes official action, the court has the authority to determine whether he has acted within the law. Objection may be made that Marbury and its progeny exercised jurisdiction only over subordinate officers, not the president himself. The writ in Marbury was brought against the Secretary of State, in Little against a commander of a ship of war, in Kendall against the Postmaster General, in Youngstown against the Secretary of Commerce. But as the Supreme Court has unequivocally explained, quote, No man in this country is so high that he is above the law. No officer of the law may set that law at defiance with impunity. All the officers of the government, from the highest to the lowest, are creatures of the law and are bound to obey it. It is the only supreme power in our system of government, and every man who by accepting office participates in its functions is only the more strongly bound to submit to that supremacy 
and to observe the limitations which it imposes upon the exercise of the authority which it gives. Unquote. That principle applies, of course, to a president. Further, the Supreme Court has repeatedly affirmed the judiciary's power to direct appropriate process to the president himself. The president does not enjoy absolute immunity from criminal subpoenas issued by state and federal prosecutors and may be compelled by the courts to respond. We have 200 years of precedent establishing that presidents and their official communications are subject to judicial process, even when the president is under investigation. The separation of powers doctrine, as expounded in Marbury and its progeny, necessarily permits the judiciary to oversee the federal criminal prosecution of a former president for his official acts because the fact of the prosecution means that the former president has allegedly acted in defiance of the Congress's laws. Although certain discretionary actions may be insulated from judicial review, the structure of the Constitution mandates that the president is amenable to the laws for his conduct and cannot, at his discretion, violate them. Here, former President Trump's actions allegedly violated generally applicable criminal laws, meaning those acts were not properly within the scope of his lawful discretion. Accordingly, Marbury and its progeny provide him no structural immunity from the charges in the indictment. Our conclusion that the separation of powers doctrine does not immunize former presidents from federal criminal liability is reinforced by the analogous immunity doctrines for legislators and judges. Legislators and judges are absolutely immune from civil suits for any official conduct, and legislators have an explicit constitutional immunity from criminal prosecution arising from the speech or debate clause. Nevertheless, legislators and judges can be criminally prosecuted under generally applicable laws for their official acts consistent with the separation of powers doctrine. Legislators have explicit constitutional immunity from criminal or civil liability for what they do or say in legislative proceedings under the speech or debate clause. But outside of constitutionally protected legislative conduct, members of the Congress perform a wide range of acts in their official capacity that are not legislative in nature and so can subject them to criminal liability. In United States v. Johnson, a congressman was criminally charged with conspiring to pressure the Department of Justice to dismiss pending indictments of a loan company and its officers on mail fraud charges. The Supreme Court held that the prosecution could not include evidence related to a speech made by Johnson on the House floor because of his constitutional immunity, but the court made clear Johnson could be retried on the same count, wholly purged of elements offensive to the speech or debate clause. Although his unprotected conduct constituted an official act under Fitzgerald, it was constrained by and subject to criminal statutes of general application. 
judges are similarly liable to the criminal laws for their official acts. A notable example is Ex Parte Commonwealth of Virginia, in which the Supreme Court applied Marbury's discretionary ministerial distinction to affirm the criminal indictment of a judge based on an official act. A county judge was indicted in federal court for violating a federal statute that prohibited discriminating on the basis of race in jury selection. The Supreme Court began by observing the principle that officers are bound to follow the law. We do not perceive how holding an office under a state and claiming to act for the state can relieve the holder from obligation to obey the Constitution of the United States or take away the power of Congress to punish his disobedience. The court then addressed the judge's argument that the court lacked the authority to punish a state judge for his official acts. Its response was twofold. First, the court described juror selection as merely a ministerial act, as much so as the act of a sheriff holding an execution, in determining upon what piece of property he will make a levy, or the act of a roadmaster in selecting laborers to work upon the roads. The court then explained that even if juror selection is considered a judicial act, the judge had a legal duty to obey the criminal laws. Quote, but if the selection of jurors could be considered in any case a judicial act, can the act charged against the petitioner be considered such when he acted outside of his authority and in direct violation of the spirit of the state statute? That statute gave him no authority when selecting jurors from whom a panel might be drawn for a circuit court to exclude all colored men merely because they were colored. Such an exclusion was not left within the limits of his discretion. It is idle, therefore, to say that the act of Congress is unconstitutional because it inflicts penalties upon state judges for their judicial action. It does no such thing. More recent case law on the judicial immunity doctrine affirms that judges are not immune from criminal liability for their official acts. O'Shea v. Littleton confirmed the holding of Ex Parte Virginia in dismissing a civil rights action for equitable relief brought against a county magistrate and associate judge of a county circuit. The Supreme Court concluded that the requested injunction was not the only available remedy because both judges remained answerable to the federal criminal laws. Quote, we have never held that the performance of the duties of judicial, legislative, or executive officers requires or contemplates the immunization of otherwise criminal deprivation of constitutional rights. On the contrary, the judicially fashioned doctrine of official immunity does not reach so far as to immunize criminal conduct proscribed by an act of Congress." Unquote. Similarly, in Dennis v. Sparks, the court affirmed judicial immunity from civil money damages in the context of bribery allegations, but explained that judges are subject to criminal prosecutions, as are other citizens. Crucially, the judge in Dennis retained civil immunity 
because the challenged conduct, allegedly issuing an injunction corruptly after accepting bribes as part of a conspiracy, was an official judicial act within his statutory jurisdiction, broadly construed. The scope of civil judicial immunity thus aligns with civil presidential immunity under Fitzgerald, but a judge has no criminal immunity for the same official act. When considering the criminal prosecutions of judges, other circuits have repeatedly rejected judicial criminal immunity for official acts, largely in the context of bribery prosecutions. Former President Trump argues that bribery allegations were not considered judicial acts at common law, but his sources do not support his conclusion. He is correct that Blackstone and other early common law sources expressly contemplated the criminal prosecution of judges on bribery charges, but this shows only that judicial immunity did not stretch to shield judges from generally applicable criminal laws, not that bribery was ever considered a non-official act. And, as explained, the Supreme Court emphasized the official nature of the bribery allegations in Dennis while reinforcing the judge's criminal liability. We therefore conclude that Article Three courts may hear the charges alleged in the indictment under the separation of powers doctrine, as explained in Marbury and its progeny, and applied in the analogous context of legislative and judicial immunity. The indictment charges that former President Trump violated criminal laws of general applicability. Acting against laws enacted by the Congress, he exercised power that was at its lowest ebb. Former President Trump lacked any lawful discretionary authority to defy federal criminal law, and he is answerable in court for his conduct. We've come to the end of this part of the opinion. But don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where we left off, beginning with Part 3, Section B. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us. <laughs>